The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. President Biden sticks by his August 31st deadline to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, despite pressure from G7 allies to postpone amid continuing mass evacuations from Kabul. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. For the first time in 15 years, a new poll shows Germany's Social Democrats pulling ahead of Chancellor Angela Merkel's Conservative bloc, with just a month to go until the federal elections. The S&P 500 posting its 50th record close of the year as markets hold gains amid pretty light volumes. This ahead of the much-anticipated Jackson Hole meeting. Chinese state media accuses the US Vice President of trying to drive a wedge between Asian neighbors as Kamala Harris continues to criticize China's tactics in the region. We need to find ways to pressure and raise the pressure, frankly, on Beijing to abide by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and to challenge its bullying and excessive maritime claims. Let's kick off with the headline story. G7 leaders have failed to convince the White House to extend its timeline for final U.S. troop withdrawals from Afghanistan. European leaders expressed concerns about the current timeline and suggested it may not allow enough time to evacuate all foreign nationals and vulnerable Afghanis waiting to flee. But the Taliban has rejected any suggestion of an extension. President Biden defended his decision to uphold the current deadline. We are currently on a pace to finish by August the 31st. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. But the completion by August 31st depends upon the Taliban continuing to cooperate and allow access to the airport for those who were, trans were transporting out and no disruptions to our operations. In addition, I've asked the Pentagon and the State Department for contingency plans to adjust the timetable should that become necessary. Uh, the Taliban, for their part, reiterated uh, that they would reject any extension of the August 31st deadline. In a press conference, the group spokesperson added that some government appointments have already been made, including the head of the central bank, with banks and currencies exchanges expected to reopen on Thursday. Let's get to Dan with more. And Dan, uh, very interesting, something that, to be fair, would seem fairly obvious to many people who've looked at the situation that whether it's G7, whether it's NATO, whether it's the EU, there is a high degree of, dare I say, impotence. If the US decides to do one thing and all the others want to do another thing as well, uh, the US tends to get its way because it is the one with the military might on the ground. That's exactly right. And, you know, Steve, coming into this G7 meeting, we heard comments from the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as well as leaders in France and Germany, really urging President Biden to extend that withdrawal deadline set for the end of the month. It looks like their calls have fallen on deaf ears. The president confirming after that G7 meeting that the deadline will not be extended. He says the pace of negotiations are on track to get people out. 
before the end of the month. A statement from the White House says that is moving fast enough to complete the objective, and that is despite the Taliban offering the US a red line earlier this week, saying they need to get out before that deadline or face, quote, consequences. The Pentagon also saying earlier in the week that evacuees are now flying from Kabul to temporary safe haven locations across the Middle East and Europe. That includes US installations in Qatar, here in the UAE, in Kuwait, in Bahrain, across Italy, Spain, and Germany as well. And the latest numbers are encouraging for the United States. That's despite the security situation on the ground continuing to worsen there. It confirmed just yesterday that the military had evacuated about 4,000 American passport holders and their families from Afghanistan. The White House also saying that the U.S. has been able to evacuate or help to evacuate around 70,000 people now from Afghanistan, at least since August 14. So that is indeed on track. But of course, there are still uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans and Afghan allies still on the grounds in Kabul. Uh, what's interesting as well is that we've just finished a conversation over on Capital Connection with Kamal Alam. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He was actually just able to get out of Afghanistan only yesterday. He's now safely in Turkey. But the anecdotal report that we got from him on the ground was that there is indeed cooperation taking place between US military uh, personnel and Taliban soldiers on the ground in order to get people out. He says it's far not, uh, it's far, it's definitely not as bad uh, as what some are suggesting in the media. That cooperation is taking place. And yes, uh, we see images of uh, distressing images in some cases of um, chaos at Kabul airport. But he says uh, his passage out was uh, quite calm and quite orderly. He was able to get a flight, of course. Uh, I suspect he is a passport holder nevertheless. So this situation continues to uh, cause, I guess, some headaches in the United States, which is dealing with this foreign policy crisis as it continues to uh, push a message through Asia with the vice president's visit also ongoing there. Uh, and no doubt is also now causing headaches at the G7, uh, given this split that you referred to, Steve. So an interesting situation still on the ground while those evacuations from Kabul continue. Back Thank over to you. Thank you very much, Dan. Excellent work. Thank you very much. OK, meanwhile, mass departures from Afghanistan continue with the US reportedly evacuating or facilitating the evacuation of over 70,000 people since the initial withdrawal. The UK says it has evacuated over 9,000 people from Kabul airport. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says evacuations will continue until the last moment and that this process is crucial to any future dealings with the Taliban. What we need to do is to use our very, very considerable influence as G7 uh, to work on uh, the, the new powers in Afghanistan, to insist on safe passage and to follow the, the, the path that we think is compatible with our values and which will enable us to engage positively with them in the future. I'm not here to make a political point, but I think that needs challenging, doesn't it, what Mr Johnson just said. He said we're going to use our very considerable influence as a G7. Well, I just don't see that influence as a G7 as far as Taliban policy making and decision making is being concerned. What I do see is the international money held in the Treasury uh, and then perhaps at the Bank of England and elsewhere as a le leverage tool. But I don't see G7 as a body having influence on the Taliban at the moment. They didn't in the build up to this and they mm. don't appear to now. In fact, less so now because of the this very swift collapse of the uh, government put in place by Western powers like the G7. 
Um, this is, is almost a bridge too far, uh, if I can use that expression. Look, we had an economic crisis that countries and the G7 could get behind tackling. We had a crisis over COVID that largely at the G7 meeting here in the UK, countries could get behind initiatives on vaccinations. And we've got a climate crisis which G7 countries are struggling to get international agreement on how to deal. And we've now got another crisis, it seems to me, which is beyond the remit ultimately of the G7 to come together on. So as much as people like Boris Johnson may feel that they can take some of the successes from previous meetings and issues and extend that, I suspect that there are too many differences of opinion within the G7 and internationally to find any common ground on this issue. Well, yeah, and when you look at G7 members, they are also to, largely, in many ways, not all of them, of course, not including Japan, NATO members who have been combatants with the Taliban. And the Taliban feels they have had a decisive military victory over. Now, that will be poured over by the historians and the military historians. We can leave them to that, uh, to come give us the details and what they think went wrong and what went right for the Western powers. But the fact is, are the Taliban going to be looking straight to those combatants who they've been fighting a war against for the last 20 years? Or are they actually going to look to the likes of Turkey, potentially, or the likes of in, uh, Pakistan, or the likes of the UAE, or the likes of elsewhere in the Middle East, or, dare I say, the Chinese as well? And, and I think it's hard to see while the Taliban are going to go with open arms, going to be listening now to what the G7 and NATO members have got to say. No, I, I, I can't disagree with you at all. And I think the history of Afghanistan in particular should instruct us when we think about the reshaping of relations between what will be a new government in Afghanistan and countries that surround Afghanistan because the history of successive British nations Afghan, Imperial trying Afghan wars, to go in Soviets in the 80s either nation build in inverted commas or ultimately suppress the uh, d domestic uh, terrorism um, it, it, that arguably uh, is happening there and was uh, in some way involved in what happened in 9-11. I mean, you know, it, it, it just hasn't succeeded for any country that's tried to get actively involved in yeah. Afghanistan. And, and stunningly so strong imperial it, powers in various centuries. Uh, and why 19th, should the 20th, 21st. And why should the Afghanis trust any Western nation, given the experience they've had over the last hundred years, as you say? Uh, meanwhile, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel says the process is contingent on US involvement. I want to stress again that, of course, the United States of America has the leadership here. Without the United States of America, for example, we, the others, cannot continue the evacuation mission. And in the same way that we are now making this evacuation situation uniform, we want to continue to make the further handling of Afghanistan uniform. Um, let's bring Sylvia into the conversation here, who's got the latest on the European Union's position on the situation in Afghanistan. And, and Sylvia, I think we're all aware of the current delicate situation that we're in. But ultimately, um, the Taliban were in Kabul from August the 16th. Why are we only now hearing these trenchant comments from people like Chancellor Merkel or Ursula von der Leyen? 
Well, there's one uh, um, one change here that's important to monitor, and that's potentially this tension between uh, the European Union and the United States. You've been talking about uh, the influence or lack of it of the G7 in this whole crisis, but it's also important to notice the uh, relationship within the G7. And of course, there's some uh, European leaders who are not very happy with the developments in the Afghanistan and the position of the United States. And in this context, um, and here we can include the United Kingdom as well. European leaders wanted to see that August 31st deadline extended. Of course, as Dan mentioned moments ago, and um, the US is still sticking to that uh, to that key date. But in this context, it's important to note the vocabulary, the words that some of the heads of state in the EU have used. And so, for instance, uh, Charles Michel, the head of the European Council, and who effectively represents the 27 heads of state in uh, the EU, said that it's important to develop the strategic autonomy of the EU. Now, these two words, strategic autonomy, have also been used by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and essentially they hint at the EU's willingness to become more independent from the United States. Now, there's a huge question mark as to how the EU will manage to achieve that, but the important thing to notice here is that this concept is uh, emerging once again within European circles. But in the whole context of the crisis in Afghanistan, um, the second main point from a European perspective is really the question of refugees. Now, at the moment, the plan of action from the European Union is really to support the neighboring nations of Afghanistan to prevent a massive influx of refugees coming to the EU. So let's take a look at some of the remarks from uh, Charles Michel uh, in regards to the refugee question. International protection will be needed for those facing persecution and for other vulnerable Afghans. And EU member states will contribute to this international effort. Second point, let's be clear. Let's not allow the creation of a new market for smugglers and human traffickers. And we are determined to keep the migratory flows under control and the EU's borders protected. So the EU also announced on Tuesday that it's stepping up its humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. So from 50 million euros this year to 200 million. But this is, of course, uh, independent from development assistance, which has been frozen. The EU is not sending those funds at the moment to Afghanistan for as long as they see how the Taliban will organize the next government and whether they will follow certain conditions imposed by the EU. Let's take a look at some other remarks as well from the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, explaining the release of these funds. The development assistance of the future has also to be strictly condition-based. As you might know, we have 1 billion euros set aside for the next seven years for Afghanistan in the EU development assistance. This aid is now frozen, and it is frozen until we have solid guarantees and credible actions on the ground that the conditions are being met. So let's see how this will evolve in the coming months. There's quite a lot of potential implications for the EU out of the situation in Afghanistan, not just in terms of how its relationship with the United States unfolds, but also within the bloc. Let's not forget that we have this important federal election in Germany in just a few weeks' time. And then also in France, voters will be choosing a, potentially a new president will be heading to the polls in April as well. 
Yeah, so potentially vacuums in leadership, I believe you're alluding to. Thank you very much indeed for that. And I know that you've been writing uh, an article on implications uh, for the European Union regarding Afghanistan. You've detailed some of those fears about another refugee crisis on the continent. Germany's Social Democrats have overtaken Angela Merkel's Conservatives in the polls for the first time in 15 years, with just a month to go before the federal election. This according to the latest survey carried out by Forza. At 22%, it marks the Conservatives' lowest rating since the pollster started recording surveys in 1984. The CDU and the CSU have seen popularity dip in recent weeks, tracing back to footage of candidate Armin Laschet laughing during a visit to Germany's flood-hit region last month. I think the other, I mean, the other interesting aspect of this is how the SPD also seem to be pulling ahead of the Greens here. And it's not just the CDU leadership, of course, that have been a little bit gaff-prone in recent months here. I asked the question to Annette yesterday, what is the difference between a centre-left government in Germany and what is the difference between a centre-right government in Germany, whether it's you know, the SPD-led or CDU-led? And I know that's a huge presumption that the Greens aren't going to come up and lead a government, but despite the fact for the first time in their history, uh, Annalena Baerbock became the first Chancellor candidate from the Greens as well. But let's have a look at the, the, uh, that poll again as well, because let's face it, Germany is a country of coalitions. And the point here is what kind of coalition, you know, we've heard about all kinds of... Uh, colours and stripes of coalitions over the years and uh, uh, some interesting um, names for those as well. But the fact is, who are you going to have to do deals with in order to get over the line and create a cohesive government as well? And look at the players in there. You've got the Greens, of course, who will have a uh, very aggressive policy towards environmental issues and other issues as well, probably seen as, as to the left of the centrists, of course, as well. And then you've got the AFD on the right-hand side as well. And what, what role for the likes of the FDP as well? in that. So I think it's not just about those two major parties. It's about what kind of coalition and what kind of deals they have to do in order to get it over the line. A stunningly enormous issue for whoever takes over. You've got to remember in our lifetime, there's only been, I think since like, well, I say our lifetime, early 70s. And yeah. again, there's only been four chancellors. I mean, we can both name them all, you know, yeah. um, Schmidt, Schroeder, Schroeder, Cole, yeah. Not not in royal order necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And Merkel. So yeah. we've, you know, we've had four in our lifetime. Whereas, I mean, how many prime ministers have we had? How many presidents have we had? You know, how many yeah. Italian leaders have we had? Dozens, you know. Yeah. Um, so the fact of the matter is that there has been a beacon of stability. So whoever takes over, assume it could be Herr Scholz, it could yeah. Annalena Baerbock or, or, or Armin Laschet as well. You know, that's a hell of a mantle to take on if you're not going to have longevity because the Germans like to have a chancellor for a very, very long time. Um, and it becomes yeah. a very symbolic figure. And I have to say, I, and I would make my previous left-field comments that I've made many times over the years as well, and that is, has Chancellor Merkel been successful? And I know that's sacrilege. I know there are people I don't know, spewing on their coffee, perhaps in Frankfurt this morning as well, but I do beg the question. On Frau Merkel's watch, we've seen the financial crisis come and go. We've seen all kinds of climate emergency issues with Germany. Let's face it, not racing to the front in, in certain ways on this as well. We've seen Brexit on her watch as well. We've seen great consternation, and great scepticism across the EU, which you were just telling me about, uh, about the entire project as well. We've seen an unfinished project from many of the economists' point of view, where you had you know, monetary union but not fiscal union as well. And there are a multitude of problems. And I have to say... 
Can you not point any of the blame at the preeminent politician of the last 20 years at some of those questions about the projects as well? And I get shot down by the by the pro-Europeans. I get shot down by people who lionise Frau Merkel. But surely, if you are the preeminent politician, you have to take your fair share of blame for things that have gone wrong and your reactions to that rather than your pro-action because of that. And that is a, a label which has been put at Frau Merkel many times. She is reactive rather than proactive. She was someone that, um, I mean, setting the policy aside, she, she was someone that um, Germans could take to their heart, and that they clearly Pretty. did. The mother of the nation, yeah. A absolutely. And, and I think, you know, back to your point about what is the difference between a coalition that is uh, black-red or red-black, depending on whether it's the SPD or the CDU that manages to garner more votes. Probably not a huge difference in reality when it comes to implementation of policy. So ultimately, what are we talking about here? Is it just down to Germans wanting to give unpopular politicians a bit of a kicking? Because Armin Laschet, his personality ratings are not particularly good. He does represent the um, conservative position. Maybe voters, you know, polls are always a little bit tricky because they're always an opportunity ahead of the event for you to vent your just spleen. vent your spleen. Without implication. But when it comes down to it, will they fall back in line and vote conservative because it is the party and not the person? Because as you look at the lineup of candidates, quite frankly, Schultz does look the most attractive. He's probably... Well, you and I have both met the most and spoken to him. Absolutely. And he is an impressive player on the international he's scene. He's a great speaker. He's yeah. quite charismatic. And Absolutely. And more importantly, he hasn't fallen into the same um, traps that the other two leaders have in recent uh, months, where they've both managed in different ways to embarrass themselves. Yeah, I mean, the Lashley thing is unfortunate. Because, I mean, he hasn't embellished his CV, has he? Let's be honest about it. But, I mean, it... it Fact of the matter is, he could have been laughing about anything. It was off camera. We don't know what it was. He was caught on video. Yeah. Do you keep an austere face at all times in those circumstances? Yeah. Probably. But quite frankly, he wasn't laughing at the floods, was he? We know that. He was no. laughing at something uh, and then taking the floods very seriously. So that, that was unfortunate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, which is um, why I think it's going to be interesting for us in particular on a business and finance channel to try and find some differentiation between these different candidates when it comes to whether it affects the way you invest. Because I suspect at the moment, for a large part of the answer, it is it makes no difference at all at this As stage. As opposed to the French presidential elections that Sylvia was alluding to earlier, Which I think that is could be massive, enormous, it? enormous ramifications. And as you and I and Karen are sitting in Paris in a yeah. COVID-free world next spring, <laughs> we'll be uh, we'll be analysing. That's I, a, that's I am, I am I crossing know, everything there, I can cross <laughs> to make sure that that is true. Uh, still to come on the program, backing the bill, the U.S. House advances key aspects of President Biden's three and a half trillion dollar budget blueprint. We'll talk about that when we come back. Yeah, plus for more on the markets and the build-up to Jackson Hole, uh, check out the Scorebox podcast. I actually haven't done the markets bit in the build-up to Jackson Hole, but let's see if we can squeeze it in the next block uh, so that it will get into the podcast. Otherwise, we'll have to rewrite this script, won't we? But there'll be no point rewriting it because it'll be gone. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, 
find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. In the United States, Democrats appear to have overcome party rifts to pass a $3.5 trillion budget blueprint and advance a bipartisan infrastructure bill. This after nine Democrats threatened to derail proceedings unless the House got to vote on the $1 trillion bill. That decision means Democrats can move forward now with a process called budget reconciliation which prevents Republican attempts to filibuster. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi outlined the importance of the vote to Biden's agenda. Madam Speaker, as you know, a budget should be a statement, a national budget should be a statement of our national values. What is important to us as a nation should be reflected in our budget. And this will be the case. Well, just down the road in Pennsylvania Avenue, President Joe Biden praised lawmakers for their achievement. Our economy has added four million jobs in my first six months in office. Economic growth is up to the fastest it's been, the fastest rate in 40 years, and unemployment is coming down. Right now, our economic growth is leading the world's advanced economies. But to win the future, we need to take the next step. Today, the House of Representatives did just that. That is the argument there encapsulated, isn't it? I know I'm doing the markets now, but that is it, isn't it? He's saying how great the economy is doing. Oh, you know, three or four bullets there about growth, about jobs, about recovery, about leading the G7, what have you. And then saying, yeah, by the way, can I have another four and a half trillion? <laughs> it's like, it's like you, you kind of get the, the framed debate between the Republicans and Democrats there. Again, I'm not stepping into that one. Uh, let's have a look at US markets. It was, uh, yeah, was it? the 50th record of the year for the S&P. There were some big old numbers there as well. Nasdaq had another record close as well. S&P, as I say, uh, at a record level, 44.86, having already doubled from its uh, pandemic lows last week. Uh, the Dow just scraping into positive territory. Interesting looking at the two-way flow uh, on the US markets. Goldman's uh, was up 47 points of the Dow's rally. Uh, Home Depot, negative 19 points as well. Do you want to look at the year to date on the S&P? Should I do that? Yeah, go for it, says Adam. All right, let's do this. Go for it. Right, look at fantastic. Fantastic rally up there um, if you're along the market as well. 19.44% higher year to date. So virtually 20%, give or take the change as well. Uh, treasuries as well. Jeff and I were talking a lot about the treasuries yesterday as well. And uh, it was 126 yield yesterday, now up to 129. The, the data was all right yesterday in terms of the new home bill, but there are massive problems. And I think. Any of this data has to be nuanced, whether it's positive in the new home sales or negative. It surely has to be encapsulated and framed in the fact that, one, uh, you can't get hold of properties at the moment. You can't get hold of land. You can't get hold of workers. You can't get hold of a lot of materials as well. Uh, and two, that prices are absolutely sky high as well. And I was just reading a great piece of copy. I, I believe it was on CNBC.com. We're saying some of the home builders just turning new buyers around. They just cannot get the houses built they cannot get the plots. They cannot get the workers. They're just turning new uh, um, home buyers away. So it's, it's a question of supply being the problem rather than demand at the moment as well. And that is a different nuance from many of the years we've been talking about previously. Dollar crosses, let's have a look at those. What have we got? The pound's back up to 137 handle, having dipped lower than that. The euro pottering along at 117.42. Dollar yen 109.73 and dollar yuan 6.47. Right, the oil, oh my goodness me. You know, I talked to you about rushing through the handles. Well, 71 now on Brent, 71. 
Extraordinary rally. We were 65 bucks three days ago. And isn't that extraordinary? And all the copy I read about, we've got Martin Ratz coming up from Morgan Stanley a little bit later on. All the copy I was reading about the crisis in the market is caused by X. Well, the same people are now writing the ebullience in the market is caused by X. Not bad for three days different, isn't it? Six bucks different on the underlying price, 10% difference. Quite extraordinary. You have to be very uh, fleet of foot, very quick, don't you? Uh, working out the rationale, not staking too much on one way or other. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be wrong in the wrong day, aren't you? Because it's just amazing, the volatility. WTI is now up to $67. Tech's actually probably where it's more interesting. Not only uh, these names you can see on the board, but we saw Amazon and um, Alphabet rallying. We saw the uh, meme stocks rallying as well, the Robin Hoods of this world as well. Uh, but we've got a difference you can see between the US listings last night and what we're seeing over in Hong Kong as well. JD up 14.4%, Baidu up 8.6%, Pindodo, which I'm told is about earnings as well, also up 22%. And as you can see, it's a little bit more steady. My twine giving back a little bit of ground down 2.7%. Jeffrey, what have you got? You just give me a really good idea, actually. You know, have you I? were talking about what Adam is saying to you. Yes. You know, yes. in uh, a lot of uh, sports now, you get the ref mic. Yes. I think we should hear the producer. Well, the oh, audience should yeah. hear the producer and the, and the director yeah. on, a, on another audio so track. So what? So we can listen to their clinking cereal the whole time as, as the show's going through. <laughs> <laughs> but well, the director, we can just tell the viewers. Yes. And we go, oh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> but it'd be nice if they could hear that. Here's a little suggestion then for management if they're watching at this <laughs> hour. Maybe we could have a separate track and we could charge a fee for that and press the red button and you can hear Adam with all the audio direction that he's giving at this point. Be interesting, wouldn't it? Think people would pay for that? Oh, would I'm going to sit down as well. Like, they had a go at me yesterday because I got in front of your camera. Um, I think they would pay for that, yeah. Because they they're a rum old bunch in the gallery, well, aren't people they? People like to see the, the technical aspect of these things as well. That's why we they? keep them in a very dark area as well. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, well, they're, like they're... mushrooms. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, China is not specifically targeting overseas listings with its upcoming legislation on protecting well, critical information infrastructure. According to the market watchdog, the Cyberspace Administration of China said the new rules would apply to all companies, regardless of where they are listed. Last month, the regulator launched an investigation into ride-hailing giant Didi just days after its Wall Street IPO. The Chinese government has since embarked on a broad crackdown on the tech sector. The US has reportedly granted licenses for Huawei to buy chips for its car component business. According to Reuters, the Chinese telecom equipment maker was blacklisted by the Trump administration. President Joe Biden has so far continued the hard line by banning companies from selling semiconductors for Huawei's 5G devices. Auto chips are considered less sophisticated and a smaller risk to the US national security. The Department of Commerce told Reuters it, quote, continues to consistently apply licensing policies to restrict Huawei's access to key technology. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.